Today's episode of the Kieran Yoga Podcast is sponsored by Moments, booking system that we've been using for the last year, so we highly recommend it. So if you're a teacher online and still saying DM me for the link, I'm not sure who's paying, or a studio looking for a more affordable booking system, Moments is a one-stop shop booking system for online, in-person and hybrid classes. It literally takes care of the whole business side for you takes care of the bookings, automatically sends the Zoom link and allows you to take payments via Stripe, PayPal, Cash or other methods. So, what can you do? You can set up courses, trainings, retreats and offer long-term payment plans, pull reports and keep an eye on your business, even run the staff payroll. So if you're a studio, it will take care of all teacher payments for you and best of all, you've got immediate access to real support via phone, live chat and email. So it's time-saving and it reduces your hours spent on admin, whether you're a self-employed teacher or a yoga studio with multiple sites. So Moments is easy to use for you and your customers. Everyone's been really happy with the quality of service that has dealt with them so far on our side. <laughs> Through the link in the notes below, Moments have given us the opportunity to offer you two free months to try them out. So check them out. And now on to the podcast episode. So welcome, Jim Mallison, uh, back again, once again, to Keen on Yoga. It's really great to have you. Um, Jim has been an integral part of the Happy Yoga Project, which uh, ran for a few years. I think it's still wrapping up now. And uh, as well as a very interesting character altogether, having lived for a number of years with the, uh, a certain group of sadhus in India and, uh, and even been initiated, I think. You, you're, a, you're an initiate to a particular sect of a Nath, Nath Babas, aren't you, or something like that? I know, that's a completely different gang. Anyway, hi, Adam. Good, nice. Thanks for asking me back. I obviously <laughs> didn't um, blow it too much last time talking about Vajroli all the time. But now I'm Ramanandis. The Ramanandi Tyagis is my, my sect. So it's a different group from the Nath. But yeah, yeah, nice to be back anyway. Yeah, it's great to see you again. And um, last time we talked about Vajroli Mudra a lot. We know Vajroli Mudra is a particular kind of, we're not going to talk about that all the time this time, particular mudra where you, you suck liquids um, up your penis, basically. Um, so you're conserving vital, the vital uh, energy of your uh, organism and, uh, and that's uh, then sub, sublimated into a, a spiritual energy. So uh, we're probably going to try not to talk for an hour again on Vajroli Mudra and uh, all different, and how to do it and, and, and all different. I, I remember milk, your, you know, you're, you're uh, saying you're not going to talk you're, about it, Adam, that, but you're already... I know, I know. I know you're going to well, I just had that memory in my mind of, the, of your guru being able to suck up milk, and then, and then he was pissing milk, and, and, and everyone around him thought it was a kind of magic power. Um, so it's stuck in my mind ever since. Anyway, on serious subjects, and this is rather more serious, um, let's uh, start off by just asking what, what you're currently working on. Well, I've got two newish research projects going on. And I'm still finishing off various things from the Hatha Yoga project, which formally finished mm. last year. Um, so for that, I'm focusing at the moment on the text called the Data Treya Yoga Shastra, which I published a kind of draft translation of quite a long time ago, but have since uh, edited it from a load of new manuscripts. And of course, I've done this. I, I should, I, I should know this is always going to happen. But as I've been trying to wrap it up and writing up the introduction and so forth and checking out all the manuscripts and the catalogues and where they're listed and so forth. I basically come across about three or four 
manuscripts of the text catalogued under a different names. So now I have to collate them. Well, I have actually finished now, but that's you know that's that's taken up about the last six months. Whilst I've been working away on that, uh, interestingly, it's revealed uh, a kind of slightly longer recension, a longer version of the text, which I think is the earliest one, and it has a an extra thirty or forty verses on Bajroli, but we don't need to go there anyway. <laughs> It was have... tempting me back into the fray with, yeah, you, yes. with that Bajoli stuff. What, what is it? I mean, you, just for the audience, could you say the, I mean, the import of uh, the Dastreya Yoga Shastra, why, why it's uh, such an important Yeah, it's a really interesting text. I used to think, before we started the Hatha Yoga Project, I used to think it was the first text that kind of said, this is Hatha Yoga, this is what Hatha Yoga is, and then other texts right. built on that. And that we now think, so Jason Birch has been editing a shorter text called the Amarauga, and that's likely to be earlier, and that's the first text. It gives these four different types of yoga of um, mantra, laya, hatha, and raja, and it says that hatha yoga is the three practices first taught in the Amrita Siddhi, so these Mahamudra, Mahabandha, Mahaveda. And then I think the Tatra mm. Yoga Shastra draws on that, but then it expands it, and it, it gives these nine practices, nine different mudras, well, they're later classified as mudras, which it says are, are hatha yoga. So it's interesting in that respect. Mm. Also, it's the first text to um, combine Patanjali, you know, Ashtanga uh, yoga with hatha yoga, with these kind of more physical methods. Mm. So that's a sort of breakthrough. It's interesting, it's trying to make, I've been trying to make sense of how it does this. And it's actually slightly ambiguous in that it gives the eight angas of Patanjali. It doesn't actually mention Patanjali. It attributes these practices to Yagya Valkya, but it's that classical system of eight angas. Mm. Then it gives, mm -hmm. it teaches the nine mudras of Hatha Yoga. And at one place it suggests that they're alternative practices. In fact, it says quite clearly the, the methods are different, but the results are the same. But then the structure of the text, it, it takes you through, through four stages as you advance through your yoga practice. And the way it does that, it, it implies that you have to do the eight angas, the eight Patanjali angas, and then the mudras of Hatha Yoga. So there's some ambiguity there. And I think that's, I don't think that's a resolvable problem. I think that's just how the text is written. Um, maybe, you know, it's a, something unclear put, put forward by the author. But right. Yeah. So, it's, so it's actually a kind of, um, a subsequent practice after you've completed potentially yoga, then the, the Hatha yoga stands above that rather yeah, than Raja yoga being usually Raja yoga is the completion, isn't it? The ultimate, but this is, they're then all that, that whole, the whole section on Hatha yoga, which takes up the vast majority of the text about mm. two thirds, mm. but is then followed by a short bit on Raja yoga. So I guess the implication is that if you sit, succeed at Hatha yoga, then you, then you attain Raja yoga. Mm. Yeah. It's just not, clear yeah it's there seem to be two approaches as to whether they they're alternatives the the, uh, the eight angas and the nine mudras of hatha yoga or whether the, the 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 nine mudras follow on from the eight angas i'm not sure we'll ever work it out but it's interesting because that but that is a kind of crucial point i think is in the do you think the ambiguity is on purpose as well? Huh? Yeah. Well, the ambiguity. Do you I think the, amb the ambiguity? It's like there's so many texts that are kind of ambiguous. It's like, well, are you saying that you know, like even even like you know, even Pat Patanjali is saying you know, at one point he's kind of seemed to be saying one thing, and the other point he's saying, well, you know, this is better, and, and 
another point, this is better, or the Gita as well, right? Like, you never get a clear, you were kind of clear answer, like, just tell me what to do. Like, like yeah. you do the yoga, and then, you know, the physical yoga, and then you go to the Raja, or, you know. Yeah, but often that that is because a text is maybe layered and different bits were put in at different times whereas i'm pretty confident that this text was compiled all in one go i mean it's he never the, the author of the text never borrows directly from any earlier text he's making it all up you know he's okay. writing his own verses he's a right. good he's a pretty good sanskritist so there seems to be a good coherent you know train of thought behind the whole text so this is the one bit that's that's confusing me but i think as a yeah it's an important uh, point in the history of physical yoga in that it's the first time it's kind of brought into the classical orthodox mainstream by tying it in right. with mm -hmm. kind of Vedic traditions. It's kind of yeah, right. really important step mm. on it becoming kind of central to uh, mm. Hindu practice as broadly understood. Yeah. Can you tell, I mean, one thing, how can you tell that it was the work of one person that there weren't previous texts that were standing on? And then I suppose, and secondly, can you tell what, what whether the, what he's talking about here is a sub substantiated practice going back a period of time by the way that it's talked about, you know, and you can you tell anything else about the roots of it going back past that from yeah. this first mention? Okay, so the first part of the question, the reason I'm confident, well, we, you know, we know a few mm. earlier texts and none of them have any of the verses that we find in this Dattatreya text. And also the kind of the way it's written, it, it's a coherent style the whole way through. As I say, it's a reasonably high level, high register of Sanskrit compared to some some yoga texts. So obviously it's only really a hunch and it's not impossible. You might find some older text that he's, he's drawn on directly. But I, also, I, I think we can infer that he's that he knows texts like the Amaralga. Uh, not the Amrita Siddhi directly, I don't think, but also there's another text called the Vivekamaratanda, a nice, good early uh, yoga text attributed to Gauraksha. And I think he knows these texts and he's drawing on them and he's synthesizing them because he's taking their practices, but then he rewrites them himself. Right. And so I keep saying he, mm -hmm. you know, we can be 99.9% .9 sure that it was a, a male author. As for whether the practices are older well we know from some of them because so for example this maha mudra maha veda maha Bandha, that's taught in the amrita mm. which is clearly at least a few centuries older uh, and i don't think they're hugely old though i think this is you know this is one of the surprising discoveries or theories i would now strongly argue having been working on the hatha yoga project that i didn't see coming is that I think mm -hmm. all these physical practices are innovations. They only appear on the Indian scene for the first time about a thousand years ago. I used to think they were, hmm. you know, they would have been, they, yeah. they were being practiced but not written down in text. And then for some reason they suddenly get written down in text. But now I think the weight of evidence is that um, no, they are, they are, they are innovations. It's like a yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Why would that? Yeah, I suppose let's back up a second and say, well, what? What are these practices we're talking about? That would be my first question. And secondly, there must be a good reason why they came on the scene at that point. Is it, you know, to do with the, I mean, it's usually said that it's a Buddhist um, interest that, that, that comes over and informs and brings these kind of more tantric-esque practices on the scene. Is it kind of an immigration or a kind of a, a passageway of influence that may have made this particular time in the medieval period suddenly rather different you know in terms of the way they approach yoga um so i suppose it's yeah 
two questions. I mean, firstly, let's just get clear for the for the audience what what we're talking about when we say Mahabhaid, Veda, Mahabandha, Mahamudra, um, as the as the seminal practices in this text. And secondly, what why then? You know, did it change so much? Because I, I believe on our first uh, chat we talked about the roots of yoga, and we talked about the roots of yoga really being penance, really. That you know, I think you. I think you were, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think, I think you agreed with me that as much as early on, it was an ascetic practice, which is generally, as a, you know, performed in a kind of, for the wish to deny the body for a transcendental aim. Um, and latterly, slightly more breath orientated. And then suddenly we find this, this rather physical tantric-esque kind of uh, different sea change, as it were. Mm. Well, the first question is easy to answer, the bit about the, what the practices are. The second question of why and why did it have, why do they appear then is more difficult and perhaps my answer might be a bit more controversial. But so the, so the, the first question, what are the practices? Well, we, these, these practices that get categorized as Hatha, first of all in the Amarauga and then the Dattatriya Yoga Shastra, at that stage there, they're just techniques which later get the kind of general name of mudra, which means a seal, but they are physical methods of manipulating the vital energies in the body. And now I say vital energies as a kind of general term again, because the, the texts talk about different things where they're always the breath, actually. They always, they always have some effect mm. on the breath in the body, but then also it can be kundalini, uh, you know, the, the serpent goddess at the, at the usually at the base of the central channel. She might be made to rise up the central channel, or it can be Bindu uh, in men, which is the you know the male generative principle, or Rajas in women, the, the female equivalent. Uh, and then sometimes it talks about the Jiva, which is the kind of again the, the, that's a, that just means that the living principle within the body. So there are these various physical methods of manipulating those. Um, Mahamudra, you know, Mahamudra when it's first taught is one of these three practices: Mahamudra, Mahabandha, Mahaveda. And generally, they are they are used. That those three and other practices are employed in order to make these vital principles go up the central channel of the body. Um, kind of the crudest, perhaps, or the, the sort of easiest to understand, perhaps, is the headstand, Viparita Karani, or not necessarily a headstand. It may have been a shoulder stand. It's never Viveka Maratanda is one of the first texts to teach it, and probably is a shoulder stand in there, but almost certainly is. But yeah, then you're using gravity. You know, it's kind of, if you turn yourself, so the, the idea is that you've got these, these um, particularly with... I thought you were talking about going up. Yeah. Like stuff going up. Yeah, like, yeah. So like, if you turn yourself upside down, right. then it's going to yeah. the head, which is what you want it to do, because gravity... Okay, I see, I see. Right, okay, yeah, yeah. I think I could differentiate it kind of two ways. One is like talking about the kind of, you know, the Kundalini serpent power rising up the spine. And the other thing which you often, you know, I, I think, if I'm correct, uh, uh, see detailed, is the idea of trying to stop stuff going, kind of dripping down from the head and, and getting kind of burnt up by the fire, in which case, you know, this, this idea that, you know, if your vital forces don't drip down and get burnt up, then you'll live forever, basically, yeah. or, you know, yeah, yeah. preserve, yeah. Which said, you know, that's said quite explicitly in the, in this, in the Dattatreya Yoga Shastra, um, I think it is about the headstand. You know, if you do it for three hours a day, then you, you won't get old and you won't die because you're, you're stopping this process of the vital energies kind of gradually dripping out 
yeah, either getting burnt up by the fire in the stomach or getting uh, expelled, whether it's ejaculated or whatever. Um, so yeah, there's that that notion. They're, all these things, you know, they're slightly different paradigms, but they kind of combine in this one idea mm. of preservation and sublimation of raising these things up up the center of the body. So those are the those are the the, the practices designated as mudras, which in the first early uh, definitions of hatha yoga that's what it's said to constitute but then by the time by about uh, 1400 or so when this text called the hatha pradipika is put together which is that unlike the Dattatreya yoga shastra is very much a compilation so swatmarama who's the compiler the author i mean there's plenty of verses that he's written himself as a kind of frame but then he's just pulling in verses from other texts so he takes verses from the Dattatreya Yoga Shastra, from the Amarauga, from mm. Shiva Sangita, from mm. all these different things. And he, he puts them together in this synthesis. And the, so the name of the text, Hatha Pradipika, Light on Hatha. And mm. so he's the first person to say that not only are these mudras part of Hatha Yoga, but also you get the asanas, so complex seated positions and uh, complex breathing methods, these kumbhakas as well. So it's mm. then around 1400 in the Hatha Pradipika that uh, we get this kind of, not, not the final synthesis, but the most influential uh, mm. designation of what Hatha Yoga is with all these new physical practices. So I assume in the Dutta Treya, there's only really, as far as I remember, there's only really kind of a Janushe Shasana where you take, you know, you kind of take a kind of, yeah. Um, you know, or even that or the one Mahamudra. kind of there's the Mah- yeah, Mahamudra. yeah Mahamudra is kind of Janushishasana isn't it where yeah. you take the leg back and then you you know you use your seals but there isn't really any talk of postures for the, no, for well, the it, it says particular says there's 84 lakh so 8.4 million right but then they're condensed down and then up then it says ultimately there's only one that you need to do and that's Padmasana that's the lotus position great great news great news <laughs> yeah <laughs> Nice and easy. And what about the um, yeah, yeah. What about the uh, the idea that you know all of a sudden there's been in medieval literature we we've kind of got this break in a tradition which is more ascetic to something which is actually more affirmative in terms of the body, right? Yes. Instead of denying the body, we suddenly we see quite almost the reversal that we can supercharge the body now. Um, not to get too David Gordon White about this, but uh, you know we can. We can <laughs> We can kind of, you know, like do something with the body where, where it's kind of stepped up in a kind of transistor fashion. Yeah, exactly. So that seems to be the big switch that goes on. And that's associated with the arrival of these new practices. Prior to about a thousand years ago, the only physical practices we hear about in the context of yoga are, are these these techniques of mortifying the body, you know, holding your arms mm. years on end. And as you said, to kind of deny or subdue or mortify the body. And then there's this mm. change in approach where the body is something to be used, to be cultivated and can in itself, if it's manipulated internally correctly, bring about certain mystical states. And so why why does that appear? I mean, I, there's definitely something going on through relation with, with China, okay? And Tibet maybe, mm. but I think possibly these practices come from China and then go from India into Tibet. And mm. They're going to be circulating around quite a bit. But the, the very first text to teach any of these practices, which is the first sort of major publication out of the Hatha Yoga project, this text called the Amrita Siddhi, um, that was written in a Buddhist milieu in India, in South India, probably 11th century. 
Um, but it frames the whole yoga process in metaphors of internal alchemy. Okay, and it took me ages, and me and my um, co-editor, Peter Santo, took us ages to, to recognize this, and that was kind of the, far, the last sort of uh, piece of the puzzle when we could fully make right. sense of the text after that. But this is, this is, again, an innovation in India, but it's preceded. We see very similar practices and also, well, not practices not so much, but the, the understanding of the body and these alchemical metaphors to describe the body are current in China two or 300 years before the production of this text. And there are other things, I, um, certain elements of tantric practice uh, and also external alchemy, you know, using, creating mercury mm. and using that in various different ways to assimilate it with other substances and so forth. Yeah. They too appear in India around this period, but have, uh, 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 there's plenty of evidence for them quite a lot earlier in China and indeed some of the some of the material substances that you need to do alchemy aren't found in India you know cinnamon yeah, only come from China, yeah. Only come yeah. from China. Um, and I think actually there's a whole broader world that there's this whole world of exchange could really do with more investigation I think also cannabis the use of cannabis which again is associated with these alchemical traditions People have generally assumed, I mean, it's been, it's been recognized for a while now that despite what people might say about, you know, the mentions of bhang in the Vedas, meaning that cannabis was used in India three or 4,000 years ago, there's mm. no, that, that doesn't stand up to scrutiny at all. And the first time, so cannabis is not mentioned, for example, in Charaka and uh, Sushruta, the earliest Ayurvedic texts. It only first appears in Indian medical treatises and in religious texts, again, around a thousand years ago, this same period. And we know that it was being used in China. So people, the kind of current consensus is that it probably arrived with in India with, um, with Sufi, wandering Sufi saints and so forth. Mm. But I mm. think there's potential for exploring the, you know, the Eastern angle as well. I think there's a huge exchange going on there. Um, but what I... At the same time, you haven't, you don't have any kind of what anyone, you know, a, a kind of contemporary on the Chinese side doing the kind of work you're doing, and you could kind of meet up in the middle. Yeah, right, there are. And say, there well, are. You know, these texts. Yeah, there are. Okay, right. Because mm. I know. I mean, like, I, I should remember the first time going back to the older Vedroli. You know, the first time I ever um, heard of this possibility that you to preserve semen was actually in that um, Yongchang Wild Swans, that famous uh, book many years ago, and she talked of her grandfather, her father. Uh, always preserving his vital fluid, you know. So, I mean, this is, a, yeah, in yeah. that popular book, right? It was just struck me at the time, you know. So, I mean, obviously, these practices, have, you know, have a vital kind of route together mm. somewhere along the line. Yeah, that, that does seem to be a very old notion in in the Chinese traditions, although I'm not sure whether they that they actually describe a, a practice similar to Vajroli. I mean, the, the idea, the concept of of preserving the, the, the sort of male... Um, energy seminal energy is is there mm. i'm not sure about the techniques but yeah there, it's, there's lot, lots of ground lots of uh, you know possibilities for future collaborative research there's a there's a scholar called dolly yang who we had a so mark and daniela as part of the hatha yoga project um organized a conference bringing people in of sort of peripheral traditions to yoga trying to see if they influence the the development of physical yoga practice so we're looking at 
you know, wrestling and dancing and these Chinese traditions mm. and so forth. And most of these things drew a blank, actually, I'm afraid. I know lots of people want to see that dancing is part of yoga's history, but there seemed to be no clear crossover. But this uh, Dolly Yang, who didn't come in person, I don't think, uh, but she she sent in a paper and she's published stuff since, which which looks at these early parallels, these kind of first millennium forerunners of things that then appear in, in the yoga traditions. And the, the parallels are very strong. The connections are, are, are clearly very strong. But that said, there are, there are, and also actually inversions are there as well, quite early on in the Chinese side of things. So, um, ah, hmm. uh, but the, there are plenty of practices that appear within the yoga tradition about a thousand years ago that we don't find in China as well. And plenty of the asanas, right. Ketri Mudra, I don't think there's a precedent for that the right. practice. So I'm not saying no, no. I'm not I'm not saying it all came from China then, but certainly there was a strong influence from China. No, yeah, there does seem to be this this shift of like you say, from denying the body to subdue from subduing the body to cultivating it and the body being used as a, a tool to be looked after, to be improved and then mm. used and manipulated. It seems, to these seems rather abrupt almost to not have some kind of interpolation from outside or on a, on a tradition that seemed rather more homogenous up to that point. And then suddenly it's rather different, isn't it? I mean, along those lines, what, you know, is there any precedent? I mean, I know we've gone through this a hundred times, but is there any precedent to, for, for modern yoga related to the tantric yoga, which we find there? I mean, it, you know, they seem to be aiming at different things, really. I mean, the postures at that point aren't significant in themselves. They certainly are ends in themselves. Um, and then at a certain point, I believe in the Pradipika, the postures have the, developed their own kind of energetic significance. Is that right? And so, I mean, that's the way that I, I expect people would generally frame a practice today unless they're going to say that they're simply doing it for health reasons. They would say, well, you know, the postures have an energetic significance on the body and thus doing the postures, instead of a tune or purify one's own energy. Um, so they do have tantric roots. This would perhaps be the, the most feasible way through, I could see. Yeah, the, I mean, the postures themselves, when they're classified as asanas in the text, they mm. are almost, mm. I think, without exception, really, they're kind of preliminary to the higher practice. Right. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes it's said, for example, fairly early on, my old asana, the peacock pose, because it's brings about, you know, because because you're emulating a peacock, it burns up uh, poisons that you might have eaten, that kind of thing. So you get a few mentions of stuff like that, uh, but no real kind of um, what we say soteriological kind of um, benefit yeah, by, by yeah. resulting in some kind of higher liberated state. But that, uh, if you're looking for physical techniques, it's the mudras really. The and some of which are are really quite like asanas. You know, the, the invert whatever vibrate the currently when you turn the body upside down. All these yeah. uh, maha mudra that we talked about earlier, which is similar to, to to things that are also taught as asanas, but really. Yeah, asanas generally, and, and it, I'd say it's the same within the sadhu tradition. Well, there's a, again, there's this this kind of slight confusion of uh, sometimes asanas are understood also as methods of tapas. You know, if you hold some really mm. painful, difficult posture for hours on end, that's more, it's that, so there's this crossover between the two, the two notions. You know, they, I think they were separate, but now they've been kind of, 
you know, entangled for a thousand years. So that that's slightly complicated. Mm. But generally, Sadhu, so my guru, for example, uh, he, when when he was a young man, you know, he was a sort of teenager when he was first learning yoga, he he did it very kind of you know, spend a lot of time on it for, for a few years, four or five years. But then after that, he would only do an asana session if he was kind of feeling out of sorts or stiff or felt that, you know, to be, I'm, to be honest, I'm, I'm the same. If I'm doing too much work and I've, I've been sitting at my desk too long, that's the sort of time I will be more more regular about doing asana practice because it doesn't make me feel better. You know, we've, been, we've been at a Kumbha Mela for a couple of weeks with my guru sitting around doing not very much. And he'd be like, oh, God, we need we then go off to an ashram somewhere and it's like doing a going to the gym isn't it yeah. like oh you know we really need to start a bit of moving here yeah, you know exactly. been eating way too much i mean yeah i've got too much tali you know exactly yeah. exactly yeah. so it was smoking too much bang yeah we just really clean up our clean up our act clean here up, a bit right. and that's a good question though jim you raise i mean it's just you know the, the kind of structure of a conference which is um still not um, precipitated yet for me but uh, which was the, the relationship between say you know your scholarly work and uh, you know work in the field you know i mean i know that you spent as i said at the start a lot of time in the field with with sadhus um and you know you've had a yoga practice for a long time what do you see as the relationship between the two i mean i know you've also tried you got into this whole thing for because of the tongue practice of kachari mudra right and you wrote a lot of papers on this and and learned to do it i remember we we spoke to that uh, on the last podcast you actually managed to do this mudra which is for people that don't know the the uh, cutting of the frame or, or not but anyway the tongue is able to go back and and uh, seal the back or touch the back of the soft palate or something like that go up yeah, the, so it goes up the and soft palate or soft up and cap. yeah forward again well, you'll know about this yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> you do it um but yeah i mean you know do you see any relationship between the two things i mean you know i mean i know you were first and foremost a kind of practitioner weren't you and then or, or, or were you the, what do you see yourself as the two have well now the last year i haven't been to india for two or three years now. i'm going going next month in a couple of months but um because obviously because of the pandemic so at the moment mm. i see myself rather rather as a as a scholar but mm. um yeah for me it was so the reason i i did, started my work on ketri mudra in particular was because i wanted this is that was i started my phd in 1995 and i wanted to find a text to edit from manuscripts that was relevant to the world that i was living in when i was in india and the only mm. sanskrit texts that were relevant to it were the ones on on yoga on physical yoga which i didn't really realize the significance right. of at the time but i think that that is significant because almost all the rest of their practices are passed down orally okay um but right, those, so you weren't privy to those, right? The, the, the ones that you saw were, were the physical ones, and then I suppose, yeah. Um, but the well, I mean, for example, the so the, the tradition I lived in is combines the two things I was talking about the, of the sort of body positive hutta physical yoga and also the body mortification, you know, standing up, for right? You and then, so yeah. in that tradition, the, the, the practices of tapas are not written down at all, they are all only passed on orally okay for you know, there's no there's no sanskrit text telling you how to stand up for 12 years on end or how to hold it, hold your arm well, is it, yeah is, it, is there much instruction around that well, or, sure yeah because yeah. it goes down through lineages absolutely and generally the oh, really? guru you know someone who, right. someone who's stood up for 12 years that one of their disciples will, will pass that on so they will explain right. you know presumably there's quite a lot of uh, 
stuff that goes with that. Well, I haven't really explored. Yeah, well, don't pick me. Don't, yeah. <laughs> don't pick me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> pick him. Pick him. He, he looks like he's got better legs. Yeah, I just, <laughs> enough, I just have oh, my legs a, are no good. <laughs> a nart a nar sadhu that I know from Kutch in Gujarat, and I'm in touch with one of his disciples. And he, for 12 years, has every Nalratra, so it's coming up in about a month, he sits down for nine days, doesn't move, doesn't eat, doesn't drink, doesn't move. He talks, mm. he sits there. And so I wrote to find out if he's doing it again this year. And he said, no, his disciple is starting this year. So he will have trained right. someone up. So, And again, there's no, there's no Sanskrit text telling you how to sit down and not move for nine days on end. That would be purely what he would have learned from his guru and then passing on his experience. Um, mm. but, but the one exception to that is these, um, these yoga methods, because I think they, for some reason, they sort of went, they've gone more broadly beyond the Saudi world. Okay. Uh, anyway, so there's a long, long winded answer. So I looked around for a text that, um, <clears throat> on that, that, yeah, that was relevant to the world I was living in. And I settled on this, mm. this Ketri Vidya text all about Ketri Mudra. Um, and that, so throughout, so you asked about, you know, the two different, two different lives in a way, but the two have always fed one another. So there's, yeah, there's no way I would have maintained the the scholarly uh, life without the the practical lived experience. And to a great extent, the scholarly life is trying to make sense of the world in India and trying to understand more about it. Um, Mm. You know, I, I never thought I'd be a historian, but, but obviously to, to, understand the present you need to know what's gone before and it's such a sort of tangled web tangled mess of different influences over the over the millennia that that's what i've been trying to untangle so that yeah needed the needed the um the lived experience to sustain me through the scholarly world but vice versa as well sometimes you know living the sadhu life it can be quite boring as well you know it's occasionally stuck at my guru's ashram somewhere in deepest Maharashtra I do, I do remember you know a couple of weeks being really not a lot going on and you know, oh, yeah. so, you know, yeah. a bit of yoga and meditation and there's yeah. you no know, smartphones I probably ran out of books by then so it's just sort of taking notes and trying to make sense of and you know and, oh, yeah and, I mean you don't see the ability to just sit and be no, you know, I not. remember seeing that first in, in India and you just kind of think how do they do it yeah. you know like you're just kind of sitting, getting on antsy. It's like, I've got yeah. to do something. No, here, I'm you know? not very good so, at sitting around doing absolutely nothing. Yeah. So, yeah. so again, that so right. kind of observing and trying to make sense of the world whilst I'm there too. So the two things kind of feed off. I, you know, I don't think I would have sustained the life in India without the scholarship and all the scholarship. Yeah, the, the yeah. In India, so. And I expect they never really presented. I mean, when they gave you any instruction, they probably didn't give any background or context. It's just like, well, this is what we do. And this is how, you know, the, perhaps the challenge or the obstacle to, towards achieving that. And therefore, you know, mm. I, I imagine it's not, you know, there wasn't a, I mean, usually I think in, in sadly worlds, as I understood from Daniela, they, there's a little bit of a scorn for textual uh, information in a way that, you know, it's yeah. seen as, experiential right and if you go into a text then you know like well you haven't you know yeah you know you're never going to know if you don't know in your own body kind of thing i mean that said my guru my guru first you know he was when he was as i said he was a young man he was probably 15 or something when he started doing his uh doing his yoga practice and he was living in in varanasi for a lot of that and he would go to all the bookshops and buy by the because he oh, really? played little right. books, you know, right. the old Sanskrit texts and read them. I think mm, because mm. you know he was interested. That's what he was doing. He was a yogi, so mm, mm, he had everything available. 
but yeah, sure. Ultimately, his experience was through um, through practice. Yeah. Mm, mm. Um, what was I going to say? I was actually I wasn't going to. It came up to my mind just now. Do you know anything? I'm this is a complete non sequitur, really. But do you know anything about Madhavasi, Madhavas Swami Madhavasi? That um, should have probably asked you this off off uh, off air, really. And he was the guru, an interesting kind of figure of Hatha Yoga that. Uh, influenced uh, Sri Yagendra and uh, Kavalyananda of the Kavalyadam Institute. He's got a very... Um, Mad, Madhavdas, Madhavdas or something. Yeah, yeah, Mad, yeah. yeah, Madhavdas, yeah. Don't know much about him, although I think he's... I, uh, I haven't looked into it for a while, but I think he's of the same lineage as me, though, Ramanandi. Oh, really? Right. His... Yeah, there's nothing really about him, so if you do find anything, let me know. Um, but that was a you know, sidebar. I had a question in my mind, which is this, I remember it now. Um, Daniela also mentioned you have to people have to listen to this podcast with Daniela if you haven't already. But Daniela Bevelakta uh, mentioned that she didn't want to get initiated. In the, well, she lived with salaries like Jim. She didn't want the initiation because she didn't want to have knowledge that was given to her the way she that she couldn't share in an academic sense. Now, you know, well, you have been initiated. I think much to the chagrin of your own wife, um, <laughs> was not certain about the process. I mean, did the um, did it change anything? Did were you privy? I mean, obviously, not going to pry here, but were you privy to information and, and teaching that you weren't to previously? That- well, yeah, you. I think you're. So the what you're talking about the that my wife wasn't so so sure about that was being made a mahant. So that's like a sort of yes, the mahant. You know, that, oh, well, that's like, a high kind of um. Yeah, yeah that's kind of yeah. being raised a to a higher level of the initial initiation was years ago 1992 and claudia my wife was initiated at the same time so that was oh, right okay. Sorry. The yeah, yeah 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 it was and the thing that yeah yeah there was i mean babaji was always pretty open with me about stuff not you know things were he would tell me stuff that he wouldn't tell other people but he would never say you can't tell say this to it to, to anyone else there were a couple of times. So there was one time, you know, then there were different initiations into different things. So I never had the full right. full sadhu initiation, but I got a few different initiations along the way, such as uh, I, I, in the 90s did a lot of going on pilgrimage around India. So I'd seen all 11, all 11 out of the 12 Jyotirlingas, which are these uh, temples to Shiva. You know, from Kedarnath mm-hmm. up in the Himalaya down to Rameshwaram, down in the far south. And there was only one remaining, which was um, uh, Kashi Vishwanath, so in Varanasi. And that was always a bit, that was always going to be a bit tricky because they, and I think they're a bit more relaxed about it now. I haven't, well, I haven't been for a few years, but it sort of would change uh, uh, over the years. But at that time, they were very uh, strict about not letting foreigners in. Okay, so we, I was with Babaji, and I, you know, what, what are we going to do about this? He said, okay, look, I know what we'll do. I'm going to give you the ash initiation, okay, so that you can, you're allowed to cover yourself in ash. And we, we were on the, on the opposite bank of the Ganga, on the sand there, and we burnt lots of cow dung stuff. And, and then he did give me, a, it was a particular initiation with a special mantra and so forth. So that, in some ways, was a, yeah, a higher or, a, you know, a, a a kind of gate kept practice where I had to have that initiation in order to know the mantra and to be allowed to apply the ashes. So I then I was just in a loincloth, covered right. myself in ashes, we put right. a boat back across the river, 
went into the temple and it all went very well. I, you know, I felt very, I was very glad to see a picture of that feeling. I, but what did you, wasn't brought, it just like a disguise? Huh? Yeah, exactly. It was basically, was it just, like, yeah, basically yeah, a disguise. Yeah. I mean, I had the jaffa and so forth, but I obviously yeah, had yeah. A, a white body that was standing out. But by covering myself in ashes, that wasn't apparent anymore. But I was feeling very, I, mean, I always remember, I was feeling very pleased with myself. And it's done it, you know, got the had the darshan of the of uh of Kashi Vishwanath and then was walking back through one of the alleys outside the temple afterwards, and some guy, some shopkeeper, sort of leant out and went, Hello, you want Bisleri? <laughs> so he recognized me as a foreigner. I was like, Oh, it's obviously not that good guy, isn't it? Trying to sell oh, me mineral water. Yeah, 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 yeah Bisleri. I was thinking, where do I know that word of yeah, the mineral water, isn't it? Yeah. Oh God, that must have just yeah, yeah broken your call. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, uh, brought me. Yeah, brought me yeah, brought, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I was about, what are you working on next then? Where are you? Where, where do you? Where are you look? Where are you looking at? I mean, uh, the two you know, current as projects. I said, start... The new project. So we got the Hudson right. project. We just had a session on that this morning, actually. Um, I'm just wrapping that one up because that was that was meant to be finished, wasn't it? You're a bit tardy on that. No, no, that's the Hutter. So this is quite confusing. It's different. Okay, there's the right. Hutter Yoga Project, which was the really big five-year one, <laughs> yeah, uh, with yeah. with Jason and Daniela and Mark. Yeah, and still yeah. got plenty of outputs of that. You know, they're all about ninety percent done, and it's that last ten percent. Nightmare. Um, but then we got two new projects, both with Jason as well. So there's the Hutter Pradipika Project, which is a joint UK-German. Uh, projects so we've got we're working with three scholars in germany um jürgen hanedas prof in charge there and so that's to produce a critical edition of the hatha pradipika which hasn't been done and one of the reasons it hasn't been done mm. so many manuscripts so we've so far kind of looked at 170 or 180 oh wow so trying to make sense of that is and luckily right. one um well two two on the german team we've got mitsuo demoto Japanese lady who lives in Germany and she's doing amazing work working out the different groupings and how the manuscripts relate to each other and then with the help of uh, Nils Jakob Liersch who's the other um, postdoc well doc doctoral candidate who's working on the project and he you know he's really good on all the computer stuff and putting in all the different readings and the computers can help in trying mm. to work out the relations between the manuscript and are are the discrepancies so great and, and, <laughs> and why do they matter huge well right. Right. Okay. Sometimes it's in the individual reading. I mean, just today we were looking at this this reading, which could be seen as quite controversial because <clears throat> it's talking about which uh, what foods you should and shouldn't eat as a yogi. And there's this phrase. It's interesting. Uh, Arjadi or Arjavi Mansam or Ajadi is unmetrical. Anyway, we spent a lot, a lot of time looking at that this morning. But it, it it's saying that you shouldn't eat. Uh, meat such as that of goat or maybe and then the, we're not sure about the reading it could also be but I think it's more like just you, you shouldn't eat goat meat etc but it could be you shouldn't eat the meat of goats and sheep but what the question is why does it not just say you shouldn't eat meat for yeah. stop? it seems to yeah. be specifying certain you know particular why, kinds of yeah meat, rather usually than the blanket usually pork isn't it it's strange yeah yeah but, I mean you'd have thought well, that's gonna well, it's slightly controversial, isn't it? And we're not yeah. quite sure what well, uh, what the implication is. And then even looking at the 19th century commentary by Brahmananda, he again just says, "Yeah, it's saying you shouldn't eat meat of the of the of the class that's derived from goats." 
So it kind of seems to be leaving a window for eating, for eating some sorts of meat. So there's those right. very small well, differences a, that that matters for people that care for Sunday lunch, doesn't it? <clears throat> it matters a great, matters a great deal. Yeah, <laughs> if you, you um, can't eat sheep. I mean, every I, old lamb is a yeah. My, I, I don't because nowhere when it's telling you what you should eat does it say you should eat meat. So it just seems quite odd, you know. That, so we're trying to make sense mm. of little tiny mm. things like that, but then also bigger things mm. about the structure. Again, you know, right. Roly is a big thing in this because some texts leave it out altogether. Some some put it in an appendix saying, you know, this is only for the higher level students. You know, some leave it where it was originally probably, or and others introduce longer sections on kitchery and so forth. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's what, so, and it's, Actually, it's, it's hard to, because the other problem we have is that as the manuscripts have been copied and transmitted over the centuries, mm. Quite often, a, people a scribe will be looking at more than one and comparing readings, and then so we can't actually, we can't be certain of what the original was. But we, you know, there are, we have to just use our more our language skills in, in in fact than than because in theory, when you've got a whole bunch of manuscripts, you you could almost mechanically reconstruct what the what the original text was if they didn't copy each right. other down the line, but they do. So yeah, it's just, it's all a bit chaotic, but yeah, we're, we're getting there. We're making progress. And of course, nowadays we can present, we, we will present a book of the edition, but you can also do it all online. So it makes it easier to produce different versions of, of the text. So for example, the fourth chapter is this huge amount of variation between all the different manuscripts there. You know, some of them are much longer than others and they have different passages. So we'll be able to represent them all. Um, and I mean, is it, is it going to be online free, just like the, how the yoga project was that you put out and one of the, the stipulations of that grant was that you had to put out all the information free, yes. right? So yeah, yeah, yes, yes. Do, you get, do we get it free? It's all going to be free again. Yeah, it will be free. If you can make head or tail of it. The books, then, um, the <laughs> books won't be free, obviously, the actual yeah. books themselves, but the information yeah, yeah, in the yeah. books will be available for free online, yeah. Fantastic. I mean, I, I, we were talking before and I rather kind of, I recognised rather rudely, um, you know, kind of uh, uh, was wondering about the, discrepancy between these small details that you're you know that you and Jason have meticulously analyzed and 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 how they make a difference um you know to the to the general dissemination of, of the work um so how do they getting this small details right does it really does it implicate what we're currently doing does it have a you know a kind of knock a trickle down effect in do you think in the yoga world generally um how do you see that things might be clarified more in the text that would make a difference to the popular kind of dissemination and understanding of yoga? Well, I mean, there are things, so for example, what I was talking about with the Dattatreya Yoga Shastra earlier about mm. whether, um, you know, whether, whether it's instructing you to do Ashtanga Yoga or Hatha Yoga or whether you should do both. In fact, that to a certain extent rests on different variants between the manuscripts, you know, so where basically whether it's a, an and or an or, you know, trying to work out and then by establishing the relationship between the manuscripts, yeah, you, that's can, crazy. you can work yeah. out what the first, so that is quite a big yeah. deal, I guess, you know, what, what yeah. instruction is there. I'm not, not saying that, yeah. that text is, is, you know, that is how everyone should practice yoga. But if we want to know what the, what the early teachers were saying, then we need to, need to explore these which is yeah which is why you kind of famously i think many people have kind of questioned it why you call yourself a philologist a study of language because really it does come down to 
understanding, I think, you know, kind of clauses in, in grammar, etc., right? And all the stuff around yeah, language. Yeah, it's not that just that. I mean, as, right. as, as my, uh, my supervisor, my, my, my tutor in Oxford for my PhD, Alexis Sanderson, always, he's written about mm. it a lot, but it's not just the, the language as well. You need to immerse yourself in the whole culture. You need, you know, it, it's impossible, of course, to do it properly, but you kind of have to transport yourself back to that period in order to understand absolutely everything about a text. And today, again, going back to what we were looking at this morning, we we're looking mm. at all the, the, the prohibitions about the different types of food. And there are some quite obscure terms, you know, trying to understand what these foods are. That's not, that's, that's moving beyond just simple grammar and, and language, you know, you need to, and, and in fact, when we were reading the text, we had this workshop in France and uh, Professor Duwakar Acharya now in Oxford, he was there and he, you know, he was able to explain, there was one reference to one of the things you shouldn't eat, which are these sesame cakes. And then you know, we didn't really understand what it was, but basically when you grind sesame seeds to get rid of the oil, you're then left with the husks of the sesame seeds. And in some right, places, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, people will then kind of squash them together and perhaps fry yeah. them. I'm not sure. I can't remember what you said. Uh, and eat them. But the kind of poor poor people, because these are like the husks yeah, left yeah, behind. It's, and yeah, it's like some food, nutritional really, value. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. And yeah, he'd say, so, well, so that, anyway, the Hatra Pradipika says you shouldn't eat shouldn't eat them. You know, so. We'd have a heyday these days, wouldn't it? No, you know, can you imagine around these days, you know, like, with McDonald's, etc. You know, <laughs> if that's the worst, if that's the worst on the table, you know, eating a dried uh, husk of sesame. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you, know, you can only imagine the kind of tomes that would come out now. But, you know, injunctions against what you what you shouldn't shouldn't eat. Um, yeah. Well, I suppose we probably won't go any more into Bajiroli Mudra, but I mean, it's uh, uh, to wrap it up, maybe to kind of sandwich the interview and, and start where we we we, uh, we finished last time, Jim. Um, I think you more recently said that you know, in, in a paper that Bajaroli wasn't actually an, possible at all without a, without the aid of the pipe anyway. And I was going to clarify this point that it was, you know, is that is that how you've come to understand it? That is that I would still I would still stand by that argument. I know there are some people and in fact, uh, there's a practitioners associated with the Tibetan tradition who I'm in correspondence with at the moment. I need to reply to about this, but uh yes because the in order to do it you know there's a there's a sphincter there's a valve within the urethra mm, mm. that needs to be held open by sticking the pipe up yeah because yeah. uh otherwise it's you know it's only it's a it's a one one way valve things can only go go down it um and if you i mean i, I suppose people might argue that you could, could have control over this sphincter but doctors say that's anatomically impossible and that if it was permanently open then you'd be incontinent because you wouldn't be able to stop urine yeah, coming right. out and so forth so that's kind of key to my argument there and the texts always say it needs to be even my guru though even within the tradition he would say that oh you know there are some great yogis in gorakhpur or whatever who you know he, he reckon may, may be able to do it he never actually verified this but he just kind of you know, there's a, a sort of legend that people can do it without the pipe, but I don't see that that's feasible. And hence, well, hence the the notion of being able to do it during sexual intercourse yes. becomes un, unviable. Yeah. 
had to touch on it a little bit or um, couldn't, <laughs> well, I couldn't resist. I mean, yeah, 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 right. That's all about our women doing it, which is quite interesting. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. The women, I thought there weren't any mention of women there being taught the no. yoga. No, well, this is the one exception, curiously. And it's so it says women can do it. It goes into a bit of detail about how it's done. Uh, in and it, there's a, I mean, God, in the, in the, the current sort of these days is, is all quite problematic. Although I think it's it's rather wonderful that it it's and surprising that it even addresses the fact that women can and should do it and how they do it. It does say. Uh, it does say that they should only practice, you know, with a with with a decent, a, a good, upstanding man, and it has to be someone who knows this yoga text. So right, <laughs> yeah. that's interesting because I think I think I heard you speaking last, and, and when someone I think mentioned that that, that there may have been a, a tradition of women hatha yogi practitioners, that you you know kind of said that that probably wasn't the case, but you, you know now you you know you're thinking that there, well, there were. Yeah, but then you have to sort of differentiate between different strands of practice. These mudra, these more sort of esoteric techniques related to sexual ritual. Yeah, I think there's certainly evidence of that. And there's, you know, there's great, there's some, there's a rather wonderful Marathi legend from the 13th century. So probably a similar time and maybe similar area to where this text was written, the Dattatreya Yoga Shastra. And it's about these, this male and female yogi and yogini having a kind of sexual battle and she wins she manages to suck all his energy of course she does yeah yeah shrivel him up exactly of course <laughs> she does but so there's that kind of stuff but what we don't have evidence for is women doing asana practice really we, i mean i'm not saying right. it means it didn't happen but we have no to my knowledge no textual or art historical or even legendary you know even sort of folk tales or whatever legends of of, of women doing arsenal practice. Just to wrap it up, where do you think your academia is going in the future with yoga studies? Can you see any, I mean, we talked about the Chinese Avenue going into more kind of um, relational. Um, yeah. I mean, a big outside of India. Funny enough, I'm yeah. about to write a, a glowing reference for a project application from Germany or actually for a Belgian, Belgian based project to edit the uh, Patanjali, Patanjali Yoga Shastra, because it's not been done. I mean, it's crazy. So Philip wow. Mars has done the first chapter, the first the Samadhi Pada. I think that nearly killed him. I think that was enough for him, wasn't it? Well, no, yeah. I think he's keen, he's keen to get back. <laughs> is he keen? To, is he keen? Right? Yeah, yeah. So that's a German, big, German. that's a big gap, you yeah. know, not having a really solid yeah. critical edition of Patanjali. It's not there. Um, so hopefully that will come together. Um, what else? Yeah, the China, the, these, these sort of broader connections would be good. And also vernacular texts. Um, I think that's that's so, so particularly from the central and southern India, there's lots of interesting yoga texts in Marathi. Oh, there must and be Canada. thousands of these vernacular Tamil, texts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Some that's quite a, early, yeah. early material. Mm -hmm. So that's a, that's a really mm. exciting avenue. I have arguments with Jason about this. I'm reasonably convinced that in terms of the the early Sanskrit texts on Hatha Yoga, I think we've got pretty much all of them. I don't, you know, there may be hmm. one or two that have, that we've lost, but we've definitely seemed to have the bulk of them. It's not like they're a huge, you know, unlike, why can you be so clear? Well, because, so for example, with the Hatha Pradipika being a compilation yeah. 
and you right, can identify okay. nearly mm. all the passages. Mm. You know, there's mm, a couple okay. of gaps. There's a yeah. there's a bit on. But he could have missed some. Couldn't yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, sure. He but if yeah, he yeah. missed them, and there's yeah. no evidence for them now, I think we'll never find them. You know, they're not going to be in. You know, and we've got sure loads yeah. of manuscripts, yeah. catalogues, and stuff. Yeah. So we we don't um, yeah. we we don't. Uh, you know, we don't see in those in those manuscript catalogues places where um you know the tech tech references to text that that might be useful yeah you don't right mm. yeah but yeah I mean, jason's often of the opinion that um you know he all, he likes to think there are more texts out there you know and something I, will come up it's like a raiders of the lost ark yeah, find, yeah. you know find it in a dusty archive yeah and then I mean, they, fall and, yeah they could the be text all the pieces of my hands yeah it could be totally separate from in fact i mean there is one text from probably kashmir punjab called the amaraga shasana um which is on hatha yoga and is completely distinct really from the rest of the of the corpus right. that we have mm. so there might be texts like that around around the place but within this kind of self-referential world um mm. texts mm. That, that we've been looking at there don't seem to be huge gaps in the Sanskrit traditions, but I, I think the the, um, the yeah, these vernacular texts are likely to be really fruitful and really influential. I think. And another, actually, also one other, uh, one, and was vernacular. I mean, vernacular sounds slightly derogatory, doesn't it? But kind of non-Sanskrit text. But I'm yeah, yeah, going yeah, to yeah. a it's workshop not, it's in, not in Italy next month, uh, which is part of it. It's looking at Tamil texts, not just on yoga. I've I've been in, asked a long. I don't read Tamil, but they're going to be looking at Turumantira, which is probably 11th or 12th century. Yeah, late 11th century, I think we can date it at. And that has some really fascinating, obviously, early teachings on, on physical yoga practice, including asanas and so forth, and lots of interesting right. contextual contextual stuff. So that, I think, again, is a... Because you know, you know, we have a problem, you know, lots of, lots of great... Tamil specialists, but no Tamil specialists working on yoga. Right. So that's why I've been on. Well, I have to get to try to make sense of what what they're saying. Invite you back for 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 another round then. After you, that, you know, kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. back from the Tamil. Uh, yes, you're gonna have yeah, yeah, Tamil now. You have to learn yeah. Tamil and report back to us. Um, well, that sounds fascinating, and um, and yeah, it really does. Uh, thanks again for coming on. Um, I really appreciate you chatting to you again. Um, it's been a great chat, and you know, not so much about Vajroli and uh, <laughs> a little bit. Um, and yeah, uh, we'll look forward to the third instalment. Uh, perhaps uh, yeah, where are we next year? Sometime maybe. All right, All great. Right. I'd love to. Thanks, Adam. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, Jim.